Welcome to Flourish. I'm Diane Panadan, and you're in the right place if you're a create-inspired life. And we do so by working on our own personal development so we can be strong role models for those we love and mentor. Today is the final chapter in week one of Psych 100 from Queen's University, chapter seven, conducting psychological research in the real world. Let's get started. Because of its ability to determine cause and effect relationships, the laboratory experiment is traditionally considered the method of choice for psychological science. One downside, however, is that as it carefully controls conditions and their effects, it can yield findings that are out of touch with reality and have limited use when trying to understand real-world behavior. This module highlights the importance of also conducting research outside the psychology laboratory within participants' natural, everyday environments and reviews existing methodologies for studying daily life. The learning objectives on this chapter is to identify limitations of the traditional laboratory experiment, explain ways in which daily life research can further psychological science, and know what methods exist for conducting psychological research in the real world. As mentioned before, I am a student, I am not a teacher, I am just sharing my learning journey with the universe. <laughs> so here we go. The laboratory experiment is traditionally considered the gold standard in psychology research. This is because only laboratory experiments can clearly separate cause from effect and therefore establish causality. Despite this unique strength, it is also clear that a scientific field that is mainly based on controlled laboratory studies ends up lopsided. Specifically, it accumulates a lot of knowledge on what can happen under carefully isolated and controlled circumstances, but it has little to say about what actually does happen under the circumstances that people actually encounter in their daily lives. For example, imagine you're a participant in an experiment that looks at the effect of being in a good mood on generosity, a topic that may have a good deal of practical application. Researchers create an internally valid, carefully controlled experiment where they randomly assign you to watch either a happy movie or a neutral movie, and then you're given an opportunity to help the researcher out by staying longer and participating in another study. If people in a good mood are more willing to stay and help out, the researchers can feel confident that, since everything else was held constant, your positive mood led you to be more helpful. However, what does this tell us about helping behaviors in the real world? Does it generalize to other kinds of helping, such as donating money to a charitable cause? Would all kinds of happy movies produce this behavior or only this one? What about other positive experiences that might boost mood, like receiving a compliment or a good grade? And what if you were watching the movie with friends in a crowded theater rather than a sterile research lab? Taking research out into the real world can help answer some of these sorts of important questions. As one of the founding fathers of social psychology remarked, experimentation in a laboratory occurs, socially speaking, on an island quite isolated from life of society. <laughs> That's good. This module highlights the importance of going beyond experimentation and also conducting research outside the laboratory directly within participants' natural environments and reviews existing methodologies for studying in daily life. Rationale for conducting psychology research in the real world. 
One important challenge researchers face when designing a study is to find the right balance between ensuring internal validity or the degree to which studies allowed unambiguous casual inferences and external validity or the degree to which a study ensures that potential findings apply to settings and samples other than the ones being studied. Unfortunately, these two kinds of validity tend to be difficult to achieve at the same time in one study. This is because creating a controlled setting in which potentially influential factors other than the experimentally manipulated variable are controlled is bound to create an environment that is quite different from what people naturally encounter. For example, using a happy movie clip to promote helpful behavior. However, it is the degree to which an experimental situation is comparable to the corresponding real-world situation of interest that determines how generalizable potential findings will be. In other words, if an experiment is very far off from what a person might normally experience in everyday life, you might reasonably question just how useful its findings are. Because of the incompatibility of the two types of validity, one is often, by design, prioritized over the other. Due to the importance of identifying true casual relationships, psychology has traditionally emphasized internal over external validity. However, in order to make claims about human behavior that apply across populations and environments, researchers complement traditional laboratory research where participants are brought into the lab with field research where, in essence, the psychological laboratory is brought to participants. Field studies allow for the more important test of how psychological variables and processes of interest behave under real-world circumstances, i.e. what actually does happen rather than what can happen. They can also facilitate downstream operationalizations of constructs that measure life outcomes of interest directly rather than indirectly. Take, for example, the fascinating field of psychoneuroimmunology, where the goal is to understand the interplay of psychological factors, such as personality traits or one's stress levels, and the immune system. Highly sophisticated and carefully controlled experiments offer ways to isolate the variety of neural, hormonal, and cellular mechanisms that link psychological variables, such as chronic stress, to biological outcomes, such as immunosuppression, a state of impaired immune functioning. Although these studies demonstrate impressively how psychological factors can affect health-relevant biological processes, they, because of their research design, remain mute about the degree to which these factors actually do undermine people's everyday health in real life. It is certainly important to show that laboratory stress can alter the number of natural killer cells in the blood, but it is equally important to test what, to what extent the levels of stress that people experience on a day-to-day -day basis result in them catching a cold more often or taking longer to recover from one. The goal for researchers, therefore, must be to complement traditional laboratory experiments with less controlled studies under real-world circumstances. The term ecological validity is used to refer to the degree to which an effect has been obtained under conditions that are typical for what happens in everyday life. In this example, then, 
people might keep a careful daily log of how much stress they are under, as well as noting physical symptoms such as headaches or nausea. Although many factors beyond stress levels may be responsible for these symptoms, this more correlational approach can shed light on how the relationship between stress and health plays out outside the laboratory. An overview of research methods for studying daily life. Capturing life as it is lived has been a strong goal for some researchers for a long time. Wilhelm and his colleagues recently published a comprehensive review of early attempts to systematically document daily life. Building on to these original methods, researchers have, over the past decades, developed a broad toolbox for measuring experiences, behavior, and physiology directly in participants' daily lives. And now we have a figure here, figure one. It provides a schematic overview of the methodologies described below. So it looks like um, in the middle is the research methods for studying daily life and surrounding it is collecting usage data via smartphones, sampling daily experiences, sampling daily behavior, sampling daily psychology, and sampling online behavior. And I'm just saying that because you might be listening to this on the podcast. So first, studying daily experiences. Starting in the mid-1970s, motivated by growing skepticism towards highly controlled laboratory studies, a few groups of researchers developed a set of new methods that are now commonly known as experience sampling method. Ecological momentary assessment. Or the diary method. Although variations within this set of methods exist, the basic idea behind all of them is to collect in the moment, or close to the moment, self-reported data directly from people as they go about their daily lives. This is typically accomplished by asking participants repeatedly, for example, five times per day, over a period of time, let's say a week, to report on their current thoughts and feelings. The momentary questions often ask about their location. Where are you now? Social environment. Who are you with? Activity. What are you doing? And experiences. How are you feeling? That way, researchers get a snapshot of what was going on in the participants' lives at the time at which they were asked to report. Technology has made this sort of research possible, and recent technological advances have altered the different tools researchers are able to easily use. Initially, participants wore electronic wristwatches that beeped at pre-programmed but seemingly random times at which they completed one of a stack of provided paper questionnaires. With the mobile computing revolution, both the prompting and the questionnaire completion were gradually replaced by handheld devices such as smartphones. Being able to collect the momentary questionnaires digitally and time-stamped having a record of exactly when participants responded, had a major methodological and practical advantages and contributed to experience sampling going mainstream. Over time, experience sampling and related momentary self-report methods have become very popular, and by now, they are effectively the gold standard for studying daily life. They have helped make progress in almost all areas of psychology, These methods ensure receiving many measurements from participants and has further inspired the development of novel statistical methods. Finally, and maybe most importantly, 
they accomplished what they sought out to accomplish, to bring attention to what psychology ultimately wants and needs to know about, namely, what people actually do think and feel in the very context of their lives. In short, these approaches have allowed researchers to do research that is more externally valid or more generalizable to real life than the traditional laboratory experiment. To illustrate these techniques, consider a classic study. Stone, Reed, and Neal in 1987 tracked positive and negative experiences surrounding a respiratory infection using daily experience sampling. They found that undesirable experiences peaked and desirable ones dipped about four to five days prior to participants coming down with the cold. More recently, uh, Killingsworth and Gilbert in 2010 collected momentary self-reports from more than 2,000 participants via a smartphone app. They found that participants were less happy when their minds was idling, mind-wandering state, such as surfing the internet or multitasking at work, than when it was engaged, task-focused, such as working diligently on a paper. These are just two examples that illustrate how experience sampling studies have yielded findings that could not be obtained with traditional laboratory methods. Recently, the day reconstruction method, the DRM, has been developed to obtain information about a person's daily experiences without going through the burden of collecting momentary experience sampling data. In the DRM, participants report their experiences of a given day retrospectively after engaging in a systematic experiential reconstruction of the day on the following day. As a participant in this type of study, you might look back on yesterday, divide it up into a series of episodes such as made breakfast, drove to work, had a meeting. You might then report who you were with in each episode and how you felt in each. This approach has shed light on what situations lead to moments of positive and negative mood throughout the course of a normal day. Studying daily behavior. Experience sampling is often used to study everyday behavior, i.e. daily social interactions and activities. In the laboratory, behavior is best studied using direct behavioral observation, for example, video recordings. In the real world, this is, of course, much more difficult. As Funder put it, it seems it would require a detective report that would specifically in exact detail everything in participants said and did and with whom in all of the contexts of the participants' life. As difficult as this may seem, Mel and colleague have developed a naturalistic observation methodology that is similar in spirit. Rather than following participants, like a detective, with a video camera, they equip participants with a portable audio recorder that is programmed to periodically record brief snippets of ambient sounds, for example, every 30 seconds, every 12 minutes. Participants carried the recorder, originally a micro cassette recorder, <laughs> now it's on their smartphone, on them as they go about their days and return it at the end of the study. The recorder provides researchers with a series of sound bites that together amount to an acoustic diary of participants' days as they naturally unfold and that constitute a representative sample of their daily activities and social encounters. Because it is somewhat similar to having the researcher's ear at the participant's lapel, 
They call this method the electronically activated recorder, or EAR, which spells ear. The ambient sound recordings can be coded for many things, including participants' location, for example, at school, activities, watching TV, interactions in a group on the phone, and emotional expressions, laughing, sighing. As unnatural or intrusive as it might seem, participants report that they quickly grow accustomed to the ear, E-A-R, and say they soon find themselves behaving as they normally would. In a cross-cultural study, Ramirez Espazar and her colleagues used the EAR method to study sociability in the United States and Mexico. Interestingly, they found that although American participants rated themselves significantly higher than Mexicans on the question, I see myself as a person who is talkative, they actually spent almost 10% less time talking than Mexicans did. In a similar way, Mel and his colleagues used the EAR method to debunk the long-standing myth that women are considerably more talkative than men. Using data from six different studies, they showed that both six sexes use on average about 16,000 words per day. The estimated sex difference of 546 words was trivial compared to the immense range of more than 46,000 words between the least and most talkative individual. Yeah, so the least was 695 versus the highest was 47,016 words. Together, these studies demonstrate how naturalistic observation can be used to study objective aspects of daily behavior and how it can yield findings quite different from what other methods yield. A series of other methods and creative ways of assessing behavior directly and unobtrusively in the real world are described in a seminal book on real-world subtle measures. For example, researchers have used time-lapse photography to study the flow of people and the use of space in urban public places. More recently, they have observed people's personal, example, dorm rooms and professional, example, offices, spaces to understand how personality is expressed and detected in everyday environments. They have even systematically collected and analyzed people's garbage to measure what people actually consume. <laughs> For example, empty alcohol bottles or cigarette boxes, rather than what they say they consume. Because people often cannot and sometimes may not want to accurately report what they do, the direct and ideally non-reactive assessment of real-world behavior is of high importance for psychological research. Studying daily physiology. In addition to studying how people think, feel, and behave in the real world, researchers are also interested in how our bodies respond to the fluctuating demands of our lives. What are the daily experiences that make our blood boil? How do our neurotransmitters and hormones respond to the stressors we encounter in our lives? What physiological reactions do we show to being loved or getting ostracized? You can see how studying these powerful experiences in real life as they actually happen may provide more rich and informative data than one might obtain in an artificial laboratory setting that merely mimics these experiences. Also, in pursuing these questions, it is important to keep in mind that what is stressful, engaging, or boring for one person might not be for another. 
It is in part for this reason that researchers have found only limited correspondence between how people respond physiologically to a standardized laboratory stressor, example, giving a speech, and how they respond to stressful experiences in their lives. To give an example, Wilhelm and Grossman in 2010 described a participant who showed rather minimal heart rate increases in response to a laboratory stressor, about 5 to 10 beats per minute, but quite dramatic increase, almost 50 beats per minute, later in the afternoon while watching a soccer game. Of course, the reverse pattern can happen as well, such as when patients have high blood pressure in the doctor's office, but not in their home environment. The so-called white coat hypertension, <laughs> ambulatory physiological monitoring, that is monitoring physiological reactions as people go about their daily lives, has a long history in biomedical research and an array of monitoring devices exists. Among the biological signals that can now be measured in daily life with portable signal recording devices are the electrocardiogram, ECG, blood pressure, electrodermal activity or sweat response, body temperature, and even the electroencephalogram, the EEG. Most recent researchers have added ambulatory assessment of hormones, for example, cortisol, and other biomarkers, example, immune markers, to the list. The development of ever more sophisticated ways to track what goes on underneath our skin as we go about our lives is a fascinating and rapidly advancing field. In a recent study, Lane Zereba, Reese, Peterson, and Moss in 2011 used experienced sampling combined with ambulatory electrocardiography, or so-called Holter monitor, to study how emotional experiences can alter cardiac function in patients with a congenial heart abnormality, example, long QT syndrome. Consistent with the idea that emotions may, in some cases, be able to trigger a cardiac event, they found that typical, in most cases, even relatively low intensity, daily emotions had a measurable effect on ventricular repolarization, an important cardiac indicator that, in these patients, is linked to risk of a cardiac event. In another study, Smythe and colleagues in 1988 combined experience sampling with momentary assessment of cortisol, a stress hormone. They found that momentary reports of current or even anticipated stress predicted increased cortisol secretion 20 minutes later. Further, and independent of that, the experience of other kinds of negative effect, example, anger and frustration, also predicted higher levels of cortisol and the experience of positive effect, example, happy or joyful, predicted lower levels of this important stress hormone. Taken together, these studies illustrate how researchers can use ambulatory physiological monitoring to study how the little and seemingly trivial or inconsequential experiences in our lives leaves objective, measurable traces in our bodily systems. Studying online behavior, aha, uh -huh. another domain of daily life that has only recently emerged is virtual daily behavior or how people act and interact with others on the internet. Irrespective of whether social media will turn out to be humanity's blessing or curse, <laughs> both scientists and lay people are currently divided over this question. The fact is that people are spending an ever-increasing amount of time online. 
in light of that, researchers are beginning to think of virtual behavior as being as serious as actual behavior and seek to make it legitimate target of their investigations. One way to study virtual behavior is to make use of the fact that most of what people do on the web, emailing, chatting, tweeting, blogging, posting, leaves direct and permanent verbal traces. For example, differences in the way people use words. For example, subtle preferences in word choice have been found to carry a lot of psychological information. Therefore, a good way to study virtual social behavior is to study virtual language behavior. Researchers can download people's, often public, verbal expressions and communications and analyze them using modern text analysis programs. For example, Cole Mellon Bannerbecker in 2004 downloaded blogs of more than a thousand users of lifejournal.com, one of the first internet blogging sites to study how people responded socially and emotionally to the attacks of September 11th. In going the online route, they could bypass a critical limitation of coping research, the inability to obtain baseline information, that is, how people were doing before the traumatic event occurred. Through access to the database of public blogs, they downloaded entries from two months prior to two months after the attacks. Their linguistic analysis revealed that in the first days after the attacks, Participants expectedly express more negative emotions and more cognitive and socially engaged, asking questions and sending messages of support. Already after two weeks, though, their moods and social engagement return to baseline. And interestingly, the use of cognitive analytic words, example, think, question, even dropped below their normal level. Over the next six weeks, their mood hovered around the pre-9-11 baseline, but both their social engagement and cognitive analytic processing stayed remarkably low. This suggests a social and cognitive weariness in the aftermath of the attacks. In using virtual verbal behavior as a marker of psychological functioning, this study was able to draw a fine timeline on how humans cope with disasters. Reflecting their rapidly growing real-world importance, researchers are now beginning to investigate behavior on social networking sites, such as Facebook. Most research looks at psychological correlates of online behavior, such as personality traits and the quality of one's social life. But importantly, there are also first attempts to export traditional experimental research design into an online setting. In a pioneering study of online social influence, Bond and colleagues in 2012 experimentally tested the effects that peer feedback has on voting behavior. Remarkably, their sample consisted of 16 million Facebook users. Wow! They found that online political mobilization messages, example, I voted, accompanied by selected pictures of their Facebook friends, influenced real-world voting behavior. This was true not just for users who saw the messages, but also for their friends and friends of their friends. Although the intervention effect on a single user was very small, through the enormous number of users and indirect social contagion effects, it resulted cumulatively in an estimated 340,000 additional votes enough to tilt a close election. In short, 
although still in its infancy, research on virtual daily behavior is bound to change social science. And it has already helped us better understand both virtual and actual behavior. Smartphone psychology. A review of research methods for studying daily life would not be complete without a vision of what's next. Given how common they have become, it is safe to predict that smartphones will not just remain devices for everyday online communication, but will also become devices for scientific data collection and intervention. These devices automatically store vast amounts of real-world user interaction data, and in addition, they are equipped with sensors to track the physical um, and social context of these interactions. The question is not whether smartphones will revolutionize psychology, but how, when, and where the revolution will happen. Obviously, their immense potential for data collection also brings with it big challenges for researchers. Yet it is clear that many of the methods described in this module and many still to be developed ways of collecting real world data will in the future become integrated into the devices that people naturally and happily carry with them from the moment they get up in the morning to the moment they go to bed. In conclusion, this module sought to make a case for psychology research conducted outside the lab. If the ultimate goal of the social and behavioral sciences is to explain human behavior, then researchers must also, in addition to conducting carefully controlled lab studies, deal with the messy real world and find ways to capture life as it naturally happens. Mortensen and Cialdini referred to the dynamic give and take between laboratory and field research as full cycle psychology. Going full cycle, they suggest, means that researchers use naturalistic observations to determine an effect's presence in the real world. Theory to determine what processes underlie the effect, experimentation to verify the effect and its underlying processes and a return to the natural environment to corroborate the experimental findings. To accomplish this, researchers have access to a toolbox of research methods for studying daily life that is now more diverse and more versatile than it has ever been before. So all it takes is to go ahead and literally bring science to life. Well, I hope you enjoyed that chapter as much as I did and learned a little bit more about how technology is changing our lives and our psychological lives at that. If you like the show, share it with someone you know and hit that subscribe button. You don't want to miss the next chapter.